Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Sebastian Thul, your host for today. And today I'm talking to Susan and Marcus Evans, authors of Gender Dysphoria, a therapeutic model for working with children, adolescents and young adults, which was published by Phoenix in, I think, this year. 2021. Welcome to the program, Susan and Marcus. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And let me just do a a very short introduction. Uh, Susan Evans is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. She worked for nearly 40 years in a variety of mental health services in the NHS in the UK, including the National Gender Identity Service for Children, which some of the work described in the book is based on. She now has a private practice in Southeast London. She's a member of the British Psychotherapy Foundation, the London Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy Service, and is registered with the British Psychoanalytic Council. And Marcus Evans is a psychoanalyst with the British Psychoanalytical Society. He worked in mental health services and as an adult psychotherapist in the NHS for 40 years. For several years, he was clinical lead of the adult and adolescent departments at the Tavistock and Portman NHSFT, And he was also one of the founding members of the Fitzjohn Service for the Treatment of Patients with Severe and Enduring Mental Health Conditions and or Personality Disorders. He's the author of Making Room for Madness in Mental Health and Psychoanalytic Thinking in Mental Health Settings. But today we're focusing on the latest publication, as I was saying, the book Gender Dysphoria. And uh, Susan and Marcus, if you would... Uh, how did this book come about? What what prompted you to write this work? Yes, well, it was a sort of process of events, really. But uh, essentially what, what happened was there were concerns that I had a long time ago when I worked on the gender identity unit. And then more recently, as people might well be aware, there were concerns raised by Dr. David Bell, who in his role... Um, as a staff governor at the Tavistock, was approached by several of the staff working within the gender identity unit. Is it okay if I call it JIDS just to... uh, Absolutely, yeah, please. Um, And and they expressed concerns about the the lack of depth in the assessment work for some of the patients that was going on. Not all, I have to stress, but uh, he made a report and coincidentally at that time... Marcus had just become a governor uh, 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 on the board at the Tavistock following his retirement. So he heard about the report and the concerns that Dr. David Bell had written about. But um, what started to happen, and I'll let Marcus say a bit more about that, but what started to happen was there seemed to be a sort of smoothing over process, the Tavistock sort of made their own report, but but really... um, it was felt by both of us that, that that there wasn't a serious attempt made to understand the depth of, of the difficulties that staff had raised regarding child safeguarding. So um, to cut the story fairly short, Marcus resigned. There was quite a lot of publicity over that, which we hadn't really expected. Um, we also became involved in several groups of people who were involved in this in different ways, clinicians, concerned parents, patients and um, other clinicians and researchers. 
we we went to events at the House of Lords. We we developed a, a, a not a formal network, but a network of people. And the longer things went on, really, the less able I think, or the less we felt that the Tavistock were able to look at things clinically. And so then uh, the parents who had expressed concerns uh, to the Tavistock were really keen that some other action was taken. And one particular parent had a 15-year-old daughter. She was very concerned that her daughter was going to go through this rather rapid assessment process and her daughter had autism and, you know, comorbidities. So it was felt reluctantly, I mean, it's not something we would ever really have thought we would do, but we, we felt we had to get turned to the law. Um, with this and so Mother A and myself initially but it it became famously Kira Bell's case um, asked for a judicial review on whether or not children could give informed consent to this particular model of treatment the the medical model of treatment so um, that was going on and and what Marcus and I both felt was that that having sort of, in a sense, been involved in something being set in train, we we thought it was really important to offer something to the clinical right. picture that we hoped would add, you know, another way of looking at these things. Um, do, do you want to add anything, Mark? Well, I was going to say that, that basically um, all of the concerns that Dave Bell raised and a group of parents who wrote to the trust board basically saying there's a lack of a psychological model for thinking about their kids and what they were struggling with. And so Sue and I thought, having Sue having started the judicial review, I was a witness, Sue was a witness on it. We felt that, you know, what we really need to put in train was some sort of psychological model for thinking about gender dysphoria and what may be the forces that are underpinning and driving the symptom of gender dysphoria. Right, right. That's why we wrote the book. Right. And and I, I guess, like, what you're focusing on in the book uh, primarily or, or as, a, as a basis, um, the affirmative model that you're questioning in its validity for... I guess each and every one of these uh, young people, uh, and and co- as compared to the affirmative model, what what would you like to see happen, or what what kind of a model are you proposing here? Well, I don't think it's anything revolutionary. I think, in a way, we're trying to establish, um, you know. Uh, a a setting or a milieu where people are able to think about uh, patients who present with gender dysphoria, you know, in similar ways to much other analytic work, you know, which is to take a holistic view, you know, to explore with the patient what's going on, to be aware, you know, of the the psychological defences that might be at play and and uh, utilised by the patient. And but it's, you know, in a way, it's as I say, it's it's sort of good clinical work, psychoanalytic, psychodynamic work, um, you know, where where one has a curiosity about the underlying um, emotions that are that are present in each individual patient. So, um, and I think you know what certainly my experience of working there and and our subsequent experience we're both now working with patients is that you know and talking to other colleagues is that there are some very recognizable um uh traits that that one sees in other areas of of clinical work um and so we just wanted to try and take the area of gender dysphoria and offer a kind of uh, a way of thinking about those particular symptoms and the particular things that patients bring, because they do bring very similar statements and feelings to, to the clinical uh, setting. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that that was. Well, I, th- I think before you engage in any sort of um, medical intervention, we're talking about quite powerful medicines and and maybe later surgeries. One would want to think you've you sort of exhort, uh, sort of explored all of the psychological forces which might be driving this. 
and taking a cautious approach. But as Sue said, you know, we take the view that there needs to be a thorough assessment of the individual, including their comorbid um, difficulties, the, the family dynamics, many of the kids presenting, present um, at, at puberty or sort of um, early teens. So you've got the whole problem of the, the impact of puberty and um, the development of, of sex characteristics. And in a way, this is, as Sue's sort of indicating, there's nothing very unusual about this, you know, um, adolescence, particularly for particular you know, certain groups can be very traumatic experience. It it throws, um, you know, the, the physiological, psychological, sociological position that the child's in, it, you know, it, um, things up in the air and causes, can cause anxiety and confusion. And there can be a tendency to sort of want some sort of fix. And, uh, you know, our approach is to say, well, well hang on, um, maybe that's the way to go. Um, but first of all, let's slow things down and think about what's going on. Um, and, and I think, Sebastian, you, you sort of commented on the affirmative model. And I think, you know, that we talk about this briefly in the book, but that I think at its root, you know, when one first sort of comes across the idea of sort of, affirmation you know in a sort of malign sense you could almost view it as as a as a sort of um a collusion with with something Mm. um and i think you know that that the heart of it was probably good you know which is with any young patient or any patient who comes to you you know one wants to ensure that the patient feels that that you understand or empathize with the way they're feeling and their situation and what they're expressing mm. i think as often happens um I mean, i've sort of seen it happen a few times with sort of fashions in healthcare that that a sort of an idea then gets taken up in a much more concrete way and i think that that's been the problem certainly here in the uk and as we understand it internationally is that some clinicians have viewed affirmation as just complete confirmation, you know, complete agreement with the patient. And of course, you know, what we're trying to do in psychoanalytic work, isn't it, is is, is understand and empathise and sort of take in the patient's position. But I think that there's something too superficial about the affirmation model that could really, you see, I, I think it's we, we get criticised, you know, for this position. But you see, I actually think you're doing the patient a disservice if you just take at face value what they tell you about themselves and their sort of often their hatred of their physical bodies and their sex that that's not going to be necessarily that helpful for the patient in the longer term. And so that's really all, you know, we're sort of trying to argue for is to open this out. And that's really why we're kind of challenging the sort of affirmation model as it has become in the area of gender medicine and gender care. Right. And I'd just like to comment on, on something you said about the concreteness of uh, attending to to the affirmative model, because I think that leads us back to something you were mentioning earlier, Susan. Uh, the question of of defenses or certain certain traits uh, that many of the young people you were seeing uh, all seem to show, and I think like something that that's very important is the is the concreteness uh, of thinking that sometimes I guess kind of extends to the clinician as well. Then right, like the um, not not like just kind of a refusal or or a dismissal of of sim- symbolic thinking right yeah i mean th- we we've got a sort of profile you were asking about the sort of the clinical profile that, that we see a lot of kids that have got what you would describe as a fragile ego that sort of collapses um under pressure when there's too much anxiety or when there's a sort of conflicts and that um that in a way there is a sort of rather sort of paranoid schizoid system that that develops in which an idea gets inhabited that, you know, if only I was X and I could get rid of Y, you know, whatever the the hated aspect of the self is and what what is contained within the hated aspect of the self, I would be so much better, so much happier. 
and and often the kids do present in a very um, concrete way with quite fixed beliefs. And, and as we're saying, in terms of the defences, in in a sense, it's it's as if to get rid of the uncertainty, confusion that transition from childhood to adulthood involves. And, yeah, we, we are trying to think about the symbolic register. You know, where are these kids? You know, what's driving this concrete wish for a concrete solution? And in a sense that we're trying to think symbolically about um, them and their minds. It's, a, it's another sort of characteristic, which is they're often very frightened of their minds. Right. You know, that they they don't really have a language for describing themselves in relation to others. And um, they, they are sometimes sort of quite dissociated from their body, which is often uh, the problem has been located in and is seen as the thing that needs to be changed or certain aspects of it removed. Um, so, yeah, concrete thinking is... A, is is one of the um, features of this group and this work. And, and of course, also the, the kids in working therapeutically, they're, they're putting the therapists under quite a lot of pressure to go along with the idea of a concrete solution. Right. And But I was just wondering when you were talking about, uh, like, the fear of their own minds um, and, and just, like, wondering psychodynamically um or genetically even like how how does that come about is there sort of like a, a in the book you describe sort of like family structures um that that uh, you find in in these kids that that they have in their background how how does that develop in your in your experience well there's a, there's often a sort of wish for some sort of ideal self which is is the construction of their own but also there's a sort of idea of a parental ideal. Um, there's often a feeling that they don't measure up against the parental ideal. And um, that, that a lot of these kids have got quite severe internal worlds. So that if they're not perfect, they're felt to be sort of outside the, you know, the, the, the family ideal, if you like. And they, they can't seem to negotiate a position because um, you might say, well, the, the kid's got to become a person in their own right. Um, they, they, they shouldn't be fitting into whatever their idea is, the parent's ideal child might be. You know, that, that they've got to become themselves. But it's as if the sort of pushing against that leads to a sort of complete rebellion where in a way they're sort of removing themselves from the family structure so that, It's almost like a claustrophobic situation. You know, they're either trapped with an ideal that they're not or else they're sort of claustrophobically or they're agrophobically some way outside the family system. Um, in, in the book, you describe a, a rather interesting dynamic between uh, parents and their children, uh, which, which could somehow, I guess, be described as sort of like a, a fantasy of fragility of the parents like mm. children might have like rather severe uh grievances towards their parents um and but but don't like find find a way to express them any other way in in as in a wish uh, to in a wish to transition sort of could you comment on that a bit more yes Well, and I, and I think the other thing that strikes, I mean, I think, yes, that's, that is what we've encountered a bit um, in the work. But, but the other thing that's um, striking as well is that I think very often they are in torment, the young people, because they, they both sort of have this solution in their mind of transition and, and kind of feel that it absolutely has to be pursued. And yet they also foresee disaster within their relationships if they pursue it um, and so they get caught in this you know and it's really painful I think to to observe and and to to work with them about because they're sort of desperately trying to establish some separation I think from their objects 
you know, and to find themselves, you know, that old cliche, but, you know, to, to sort of um, separate out. And yet, I think the fear is that this particular, and of course, there's there's some relative um, reality about it, but this particular solution is also completely destructive. You know, their fear is that it will mm-hmm. absolutely break the family relationship. So they're really caught um, in in a, up in something that I mean, and of course, it, this is not always everyone, and it's not always the case. But I think it's something. I think we've both mm. seen, um, and so so there's a real problem with separation, and it's like again almost a concrete enactment. If I am no longer Joanne, but I'm Joe, I literally have become somebody else. You know, I've separated out from the biological girl that was my parents' daughter, and now I'm a kind of an identity of my own making. So, um, and of course that, that you know, that's complex work. But I think it, 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 the other thing just to say that I've noticed is that I think a lot of the parents would say how good these children have mm, been growing up. Right. Where they've right. got compliant personalities, you know, mm. never kind of rebelled with a capital yeah. R. Um, and again, it's not all of them every time, but but it is a pattern again. And I think that does give you a clinical clue, really, to the fragility of the internal object and the, and the challenge to separating. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not always true, but it, it's sometimes true that, um, as Sue's saying, there's a problem sort of standing up to the parents, as it were, um, it's sort of verbally and in sort of arguments, but that so that in, in a, as Sue's saying, you know, often there's a sort of compliance, but the sort of re, the rebellion goes on through the idea of sort of concrete transition, you know, which the parents are not always and families vary a lot, but often the parents feel very worried about and hurt about, you know, we gave you this name because you know, this means something to us. And the fact that you don't, you're rejecting it and you want to be called by another name is really a rejection of the child we had in mind, you know. Um, Mm. It's it's really interesting that you would would say that parents uh, usually go along with the wish because, like, my my clinical experience is is somewhat uh, different and sometimes there's... uh, or like, rather, I mean, I see parents going along with the wish to transition, not being so opposed opposed to their children's wish, we- and and sometimes like, I, I kind of wonder if if there isn't a glossing over of this of of the aggression that's that's in the wish to transition, an aggression towards the parents can be right. Well, I think the families vary in this, right, right, and you know that we see a lot of because because of course. You know, we've been very public about our position, so we tend to get contacted by parents who are very concerned, very worried, and the letters are are often very similar. We we're not against transition in the long run, but we're worried that our child has got sort of um, um, comorbid problems. Uh, they, they've always struggled in various different ways, and we feel that this is a, a quick solution with long-term serious consequences that haven't been thought through. So we get a sort of regular a flow of letters from from parents of that sort on a week. Right, right. Now uh, Sue will talk about Jids because Jids is a you know, there's a different profile. There's some of those sorts of parents, and they were, I think, the ones that wrote to the trust board because they weren't happy about the lack of psychological evaluation. But then you get other groups which are more like the, the more like the families that you're describing. Uh, and I think it's hard because obviously, you know, we're here today. We're sort of trying to think about the clinical. Um, aspects of, of of the work and and of this but but i think like, it's hard to disaggregate um the sort of the, the the sort of political and the social environment in which the children and their families now find themselves and i think it varies from nation to nation you know i, I think that um 
parents have also been frightened into believing that their child will suicide unless they affirm. And you can understand that if professionals are saying that to parents, that this is the best model of treatment, um, you know, most parents would say, oh, OK, you know, that's what we'll we'll do. We'll follow the professional lead. And the other thing I, I would say, again, that's been commented on um, is that there is potentially some internalised homophobia of the patients and also homophobia of the parents, you know, that some parents might prefer a heterosexual daughter, for example, rather than a very feminine gay son. Um, but, but again, that varies culturally, it varies from family to family, and I think, it, you know, it varies um, in different countries. Um, but I think you, ca- you can't... It, it, it's difficult to ignore the influences that come to bear on both the child and, and the parents and the clinicians, depending on the environment they're working in. And I think we've been fortunate that, you know, because we're working privately, that, that, that you know, in a sense, um, we've got that freedom to keep things open. Right, right. I, I, I was just going to say, in answer to your question, I used to work in in suicide previously and that the sort of denial of hostility was often very present present you know in um uh, relatives when someone's killed oneself and sometimes the relative talks about their sort of heroic gesture and one thing or another and the, and the, den- the the hostility towards um nearest and dearness is de- denied and i and i think there's that's also a, a phenomena that goes on in this area. Um, so there's a sort of idealization of, you know, how brave people are by wanting to transition, and and some denial of the underlying hostility that's involved. But I, but I also, you know, agree with Sue. And the first two chapters of the book are about the social um, picture, in a way. The, the fact is, is that the affirmation model is, is sort of driven by political beliefs. The, the, the whole area has been politicised. There is an evidence base for the previous approach, which was watchful waiting, which is that a high proportion of children, you know, if supported through adolescence, will actually desist in their gender dysphoria. But that's been sort of jettisoned in preference for affirmation. Carl Hennigan, who's the uh, professor, um, one of the senior professors of NICE, who looks at what treatments the NHS will back and buy, he basically said this is an experimental treatment. There's so little evidence around um, and even the, the gathering of evidence has been affected by the politicisation. So services, parents um, are, are really being influenced by a sort of doctrine which is more driven by a political ideology than it is by clinical facts. Right, right. Like some... Or a question that really came up for me when I was when I was reading the book and also I guess in my clinical work is um, I sometimes hear other clinicians, uh, especially from other medical disciplines like surgery or whatever, describe patients who've uh, transitioned and how how well they're doing and and how like successful the transition was, um, and I like. Myself, I'm working in a, in a psychiatric setting, right? So I'm seeing patients that struggle with a whole number of issues on top of their gender dysphoria. Mm. And I'm always wondering, like, who are these patients they're describing who are doing so well, like, after transition? I, I bet they're out there. Uh, you're not describing them in the book. Uh, and, and I was wondering, like, do you not see these people? Is, does it does it have to do with with uh, the setting you've always um, worked in? And I was I was sort of reminded, if I may add, that um, y- you know how like in the seventies there was this whole controversy between uh, Otto Karrenberg and Heinz Kohut about the treatment of narcissism, right? Mm. And and I was one like some commentator back then was saying like, 
um, maybe maybe they're just seeing different patients. Like maybe Kernberg's seeing yeah. like um, patients who are just much more disturbed because of the setting he's working in. Mm. And Cohort is in private practice, so he sees like you know healthier patients. And and that's that's something I was I was wondering about. Like and also about the decision in the book to only include people who who either detransition in the case uh, descriptions or who who you think this is not going to end well if they transition. But there must truly be be other people out there. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, if you so in the eighties, I used to uh, run a parasuicide service, and at that time, we're talking about a very different group um, that would transition, mainly male to female, all over eighteen, um, and the, the the sort of belief that was around at the time was all but 1% of people who transition make a successful transition. Right. Now, now I used to see people <clears throat> in Kings on a fairly regular basis who had transitioned and the transition had not worked out for them. Often they had comorbid problems. Often they believed that this would um, solve the problem. Now, as you say, I'm seeing a certain proportion of the population I'm seeing the ones who post-transition feel that things have not worked out for them and they're, and they're taking overdoses. I, they didn't come into casualty that that proportion of people, you know, who, for whom transition worked. So, right. Um, but, the, but sort of over the last 15 years, there's been this exponential rise in you know mainly female to male and the the age at which people are wanting to transition is getting younger and younger because the, the the laws have changed um so this is a very different cohort right uh, from the cohort you know 30 years ago um but as you say you know as, as we were talking about you know um you're talking about the sort of attitude of parents very parents who are very much for um, transition are very unlikely to contact Marcus and Sue Evans. Right, right. We, we get the ones who've read what we've got to say, and they say, "Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense." And we are we've got our worries. So there's a whole other group who wouldn't come anywhere near us. So we're just writing about our experience of working with these kids. Um, I think the worrying thing about the area is, if I think, certainly in, in the time that I worked in, in the NHS, in mental health services, you know, something, for example, like anorexia nervosa, you know, was, was researched, different treatment models were tried out, you know, very serious clinicians had units and they would follow people up over the longer term. And, you know, there was a lot of research and inquiry into the area. And I think, you know, again, I think the disservice that is being done to people who may wish to transition is that it's so difficult to take uh, a 360 degree view mm. of what is right. Best. And of course, it may not be an exact science, but the problem we have at the moment is, for example, we know there are potentially thousands of people now regretting transition. Certainly there are hundreds who are on websites. Um, and, and the difficulty is that WPATH, um, you know, the world authority yeah. on this in this area, will still quote that there's a sort of no, a 1% regret rate. Now, nobody knows that. You know, how can you know? Because I certainly myself have spoken to some people who have detransitioned who haven't even told their GPs. They've just right. taken their hormones and they're sort of feeling very disappointed in what's gone on and having to deal with all sorts of psychological difficulties. Other people will detransition and kind of get on with life again and, and actually make their own adjustments. But again, we just don't know. And I think that that's the disservice in this area is that we're just not looking closely enough or, or deeply enough um, at, at who might, you know, ultimately feel 
because there will always be gains and losses, won't there, in any sort of major choice like this. But there may be some people who do lead their best possible life as a transitioned person. But, you know, if we're not allowed to investigate before people do that, if we're not allowed to be curious about what the causes might be, how we might understand the mind um, in gender dysphoria, because it's a distress of the mind. About. I, 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 if I may comment on that, and I'd like yeah. to take us back into the consulting room for a moment, sure. because because I think it's it's not just like um, you know societal or political circumstances that make the work so difficult. You were um, commenting earlier on the pressure, yeah, uh, in, in the consulting room, and I think what you're describing really well in the book and in the case notes and in the there's some protocols in the book that are really powerful. Uh, of of sessions, um, it is the difficulty of of sitting with the pressure of of uh, you know people coming in, they have a solution in mind, and you're sort of not you know going along with that. You're not really opposing it. You're just sitting with it and trying to explore it, mm. and that's so painful and so difficult for the patients. But also for the clinician, right? I mean, that's some of these notes almost read like they're almost unbearable to take because yeah. I, I, th I guess like the natural impulse is to just go along and to just, you know, wanting to give them the solution. Well, well you know, nobody comes into this business wanting to sort of torment the patient or inflict pain. And yet the patient's saying, look, if you question my way of thinking about myself, you know, you'll be exposing me to doubts and confusions, which I find hard to bear. So you're right, um, Sebastian, you, you, you are trying to, there's a lot that's got to be managed in the counter-transference. So, for example, often, you know, the, 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 the child, a young adult that comes to see you, that the parents are paying and they've, they've done a sort of, you know, there's a contract struck, as it were. Look, um, okay, we'll support you if we go, if you go through a sort of a thorough process of psychological evaluation. Now, in the transfer, some of the time, the child may feel that you're sort of working to the parents' agenda, really that you, you want to restore them to the their fantasies of the parent's ideal child, which right. they don't feel they can be. Now, um, that's, not, that's not our job. Our job is to be neutral in terms of, a, you know, the sort of exploration and, um, and understanding the transference and understanding that's how they may see you. But, but, but on the other hand, you know, um, we, we are wanting to examine and explore where there are areas of the individual which we feel may be um, amount to sort of self-harming or sort of getting rid of some aspect of the personality that is felt to be damaging. You know, that the child says, I can't live my life until... I've got rid of my feminine attributes or whatever. And, and we're trying to hold some space in which we're trying to think about what, what, what is it that's bound up in that rather, that lump called your feminine body, you know. What, and, and, you know and then obviously that involves, you know, how they feel about their relationship with their mother, how they feel about their transition from being a child of the mother to uh, an adult person with their own sexuality. Um, but you're right, the concrete nature of the solution and the sort of pressure on the therapist means that you're having to do a lot of work in working through the sort of counter-transference and trying to, um, you know, not act out as it were uh, either by colluding on the one hand or by um sort of pushing against the, the patient on the other it's really interesting to hear you describe that because i've often uh thought about going along with 
like with with the affirmative model in some instances not in all but in some instance instances as sort of like an paradoxically an unconscious hostile countertransference you know in in the sense of wanting to get rid of the patient just give them what they want so they leave yes yes and i was wondering if you've yes. encountered that either in your own work or in 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 supervision yes i i i I definitely have have had that experience, and I I don't know whether you've had this, but I quite often literally get a headache at the end of the sessions right. because I think there is something about the concrete nature of the work that that really uh, hits me at a sort of a physical level. It's extraordinary how how often that's happened, but um, I I absolutely have had that moment where a part of my mind would say you know just give in here let's mm -hmm. just give in here and and I suppose the way I try and think about that is I notice it in myself and I kind of try to think about it as as a sort of feeling of hopelessness and helplessness and and try and link that maybe to the material that's sort of been appearing or not just before but what I might know is going on in their life and then see if there's some way of of bringing that back in because I I think that's the other thing and I don't know if you've encountered this as well is that on on initial kind of presentation some of the children can seem very you know very sure about themselves they kind of hmm. know what they want and so on but i think that underneath that is often someone who feels really um quite depressed and sad mm. perhaps not clinically depressed in an obvious way but i think you know they often feel very alone and and kind of uh sort of distanced from themselves and from others. I think they're, they're often aware that they're just not kind of fitting in with life mm. very often. Um, and, and, I, and I suppose there's that link again with the sort of more um, schizoid personalities. That's the sort of an analytical kind of way of thinking about it. But, you know, a lot of parents will say, oh, well, I've often wondered if my child is autistic or on the right. spectrum. And I think, again, you know, that, that there, there is, for, for, for many of these children, sort of imagination and exploration is just mm -hmm. not something they've, been used to you know they so so it's a, it's a sort of really challenging area to try mm. and take the young person in with you mm. i was thinking in a way see we've got our own ideals what the ideal patient is isn't it like as a parent your ideal is is that your your child will live a full and successful life and have a successful career and bring you pleasure in one thing or another and and analytically we, we we like patients who enable us to work so uh -huh. can tell us what's going on in their minds and um and bring their imaginations and one thing that there's a there's they free associates maybe not at the beginning but um now now i think that in a way this gets reenacted um what goes on with the parents with us because the patient comes and says well I, you know, I don't, I'm only here to sort of keep my parents happy. Um, I think I hate thinking about myself. I don't really want to tell you what's going on, because if I did, I'd say this is a complete waste of time. You're just obstructing me. And I'd be a pretty unpleasant patient. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And, and I'd be confronted with a lot of psychic pain, right? And a lot of yes. psychic pain yeah. and a lot of you know, concrete thinking and things that we, which, which hurt our heads. But in a way, you know, that's who they are, in a sense. Um, that's what that's what they're bringing. And I suppose what they're testing out is, have you got room in your model for this rather concrete thinking, um, quite passively aggressive, you know, patient who doesn't play ball and doesn't allow you to do your work in the ordinary way. And I, and I think they've got an eye on you in, in terms of your tolerance of of them being themselves, if you like. Right, right. I was I was sort of surprised just just to comment on that uh, to not see any cases described in which uh, you would work. Uh, therapeutically or analytically with patients while they transition 
Is that something you don't do or is it is it an either or situation in your thinking? Um it, it, I, I've I've been contacted by um one or two people post transition who've been interested you know in what we've written about or they've heard us talking on something and I think they've they've got questions about themselves but again it's just our situation I mean you know right. we're not particularly I I certainly would be happy enough to see you know someone post transition detransition I mean you know that in a sense that's the work isn't it any analytical work you you accept a patient who comes and says can you can you work with me can you treat me but but I think um the, the thing for writing this book I mean we we wanted to uh you know, try and get it out quite quickly. Um, we're learning all the time. We're developing our ideas, um, you know, and 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 I think undoubtedly there'll be all sorts of, you know, things to add to this. I think that the, the difference might be, or I don't know if I'd say the difference, but I think something about the work that we're doing here is, in a sense, trying to help um by the curiosity trying to unlock an area of the mind um, that is being sort of closed down and then the defences are utilised in, in this sort of almost like this sort of magical cure way. You know, if I do this, I know I'll be happy. Um, mm. sort of a, an escape from something. Whereas I suppose what, what you have post-transition is that the defences might um, be in place, but then, of course, it's it's certainly I imagine much more painful for the patient then to start to open up yeah. to <clears throat> to what their defenses might have been or how they were um, configuring things that led to this. You know, I think it's so I, yeah. I, I I'm not sure really about that area. Well, it, well, we, I, well, I was just thinking. See, I I have worked with patients who who go for a, a sort of medical solution and then. The therapeutic work has broken down. Basically, I right. less discharged them, but there was one patient who, you know, he he got the all clear to go for transition and basically stops stop seeing me. Um, and and I think Sue talking about her experience in Jids is that you know when the concrete solution is available, as it were, are trying to hold on to the line that there's some value in thinking psychologically I think gets more difficult in a way you know the, 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 there's a sort of a, a power <laughs> that's involved in a you know in a medical intervention that psychological work struggles to compete with I think um, but we got I don't I don't think in principle we've got nothing against working with people who are you know, pursuing active medical interventions and many of the people we see are considering active medical interventions just not yet right right well i guess i guess like one of the central questions this book brought up for me and this this might also have to do with uh the setting you you're used to working in like in a psychiatric setting is how how on earth do we do therapy let alone analysis with people who don't who want no part of it mm. right i mean that's like that's pretty much one of the central issues here that that don't just um uh, uh belong to the to the area of gender dysphoria but but in general for 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 a number of patients right people who like who yeah. just don't don't want to go don't want to do psychotherapy and we we have we have the idea that they would profit from it but like yeah um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think in a way, you see, in a sense, but it's, 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 I mean, obviously, you know, the thing is, is we're talking about adolescence. And so right. who knows what the end outcome was when I used to run the adolescent department. The adolescent department was at the Tavistock was very wary about giving diagnoses because of the prognostic implications. And in actual fact, we know from adolescence, you know, things change so quickly and the way someone presents when they're 14 is very different from the way they present when they're 24. So, um, um, but I think that, 
yeah, we are working on the margin so that, you know, in some ways, if, if, if the individual feels they sort of, they can't engage with life, and they've got this sort of lump of a problem which they want, you know, removed, and the, the only way they feel they can engage with life is if, in some ways, they're supported in having this thing removed. You know, um, yeah, you... you to, to some extent, there's a lot of contempt of what you're offering because you're saying, well, hang on a minute, let's think about what this thing is that's so awful and um, and why it is that you feel you can't engage with life until that's been dealt with as often is the way it's sort of presented. But, you know, these, these are difficult areas, but they're not unfamiliar to uh, psychotherapy and um you know as, as as in previous generations you might be talking about people who develop anorexia or um you know um or cutting or you know um but you know psychotherapy does work in those areas not not always successfully but but usually he's got something to say about the pro- the underlying problems um what, what what you were just saying uh, reminded me of a, of a question I had in mind when I was when I was reading some parts of the book uh, when you were using the word objectivity. It jumped out at me because I hadn't read about objectivity uh, in in psychoanalytic work for quite a while, to be honest. And I was thinking about because you're you're kind of using that sort of like as a as a family or a paternal like model, right? I mean, there has to be empathy, but there also has to be some distance, some objectivity. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if, uh, if, if the, you know, the dismissal of like sort of paternal or paternalistic medicine in general, and also psychoanalysis and psychotherapy mm-hmm. has kind of thrown the baby out with the bathtub, right? Like, I mean, um, now there's, there only seems to be empathy in some instances and not, nothing like, you know, no distance, nothing, nothing, you know, boundaried uh, on which, which the patient can, can sort of, you know, run up against, but also kind of lean on in a way. And I was, I was wondering if you had some thoughts on that, on that association. Mm. I mean, again, I may sort of ramble off into other areas here, but I suppose that one of the things that has been sort of occurring to me as as I've been sort of working and assessing, um, you know, and just talking with some of the parents and some of the young people is that I think there is, has developed an aversion to psychic pain. I think society, mm. you know, there's an idea everyone can have everything and Absolutely. You know, nobody should suffer and, you know, we should all be happy. And and and, and ironically, you see, I think that that, that means that, children don't a bit like when the toddler falls over you need the parents to say go on get up dust your knees off you're okay you know unless they're really bleeding and then you pay some attention but there's a way in which I think that the the sort of containment the parental role of containment you know whether it's the mother or the father um, has been sort of undermined and I think parents have been pushed aside the sort of you know the the kind of uh, authority in parenting i think parents don't feel as able to to feel that they know what's best for their children but i think they also don't want their children to experience any pain and and as i say i'm repeating myself but that i think there's that that's led actually to fragile egos that that don't believe they can survive separation Mm. don't believe they can endure psychic pain so so um i don't know if that sort of but but i think it, it goes on in the clinical area as well you know that 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 kind of empathy i think that's what the affirmation model is about you know it's it's not wanting to put any painful ideas in front of the patient um that, yeah that, yeah I, I i was thinking you see i, I was thinking of psychoanalytic work is there's two elements to it the first element is a receptive one isn't it is a is as sue's emphasizing one one sort of 
tries to understand where the patient's coming from and why the patient's developed a particular view. But the second element involves separating from that and developing, you know, your ideas about the patient's contribution to, to their situation. Right. And that's the more sort of diagnostic, um, maybe felt to be um, intrusive element. And now, of course, there's no point in, you know, challenging the, the patient's defences in an aggressive way. It's going to lead to a trauma. But, but I do think you, you are trying to interest the patient in your observations about their state of mind, as well as, it, as, well as understanding their own way of thinking. And, uh, and I think that's very much along the lines that you're talking about, that, that um, we're also trying to treat the patient. We're not just trying to care for the patient. Right, right. I find myself quite a lot in the work, I think more so in this area, um, sort of using sort of analyst-centred interpretation or, or or kind of just exploring things in a sense which which starts off with, I imagine I would feel or I'm wondering, you know, I, I think this way and I wonder what you feel rather than sort of making a direct interpretation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I feel that can land a bit better with the young pa- patient sometimes mm. that, that you're not saying it is, you know, you're not saying you know, but you're kind of, that's a sort of objectivity in a sense because you're bringing something from outside in. Right, right. And they can reject it, but but you've kind of planted it there in the session. Uh, so, so um, yeah. But I, th- I think also calling, see, with certain patients you feel they sort of, they're like um, patients out of Betty Joseph's paper addiction to near death you see mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. averse to saying to a patient you seem to be completely withdrawn from life into some supervisory position often they're looking down on what you've got to offer or what their parents have got to offer as if you've become afraid to sort of get involved you you're you're because sometimes as you say the patients are quite passive they're not giving you very much mm. you know and i i I think sometimes you can talk straight to the patient a bit, a bit as you say. Um, if if we're always so sensitive, assuming they're so fragile, mm. it can lead to a sort of um, a situation of, of sort of inertia. You know, sometimes one has some confidence to say, mm. you know, I think you've just withdrawn from life. You're not going to engage with me. You're going through the motions, you know, you're supervising everybody, but from a from some superior position, you know, um, and the patient can sometimes light up like they, you've spotted something about uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, They don't just, you know, fragment and going, you're being a terribly persecutory figure. You, you, you know, uh, they actually, there's a spark of life. Um mm. Mm, that's that's very interesting. I think that's actually the, the spark of life is a good sort of good note to to bring this to a close because we're almost at the one hour mark. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was wondering, wh- where are you taking? What are you doing with the book? Like from now on, are you doing doing readings or what? How are you, what are you what are you doing with the material? We've done one conference uh, for the in the UK, and um, with slight trepidation, we're doing another. In the in the, in America uh, on American time with some uh-huh. American guests uh-huh. that we know, um, and uh, you know we, there seems to be quite a lot of interest. So um, you know, but you 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 never quite know how it's going to go. Um, right. Yeah, it's not without its anxiety provocation. Yeah. But I think I think what what has been encouraging is that that from the other day when we we did this conference, um, you know, clinicians contacted us and just said mm. it is a relief 
to hear some people thinking aloud, <laughs> you know, right, to, right. to be exploring uh, this in, in more depth, because I think people have had worries in their teams and, and in their clinical areas. Mm. And, and I think, you know, it's a bit of a relief if someone else starts to say things that have been sort of around in your mind. So um, we don't want to be martyrs. No. <laughs> right, right. But, but, but I think, you know, we're, we're trying you know, just to talk with people who might be interested in in trying to think with their patients in a in a, in a different way or in a more you know holistic way. Really, that's all we're trying yeah. to do. So one psychiatrist said that she felt she two years ago she couldn't have had a discussion about her reservations of the affirmation model and what was going on with patients, and she said now. Although in public, it would be very difficult to speak. Actually, she can talk to other colleagues who are raising anxieties and questions about, you know, what the best course of action would be for a particular patient. So as if there is a little bit more freedom to think about things. But we, we do get asked to speak at various different events. And we, we're also going to set up a clinical seminar we're oh, wow. interested um so we've got some child psychotherapists that we're going to be meeting once a month yes um, oh, great yeah yeah oh that sounds very interesting well thanks so much guys for talking uh, to me today it was really really a pleasure and very very interesting i bet uh, we'll have a lot of lot of reactions to our conversation um and yeah it would be would be great to have you back on the program sometime Thanks very much for having us. Thanks, Sebastian. Uh, thank you, guys. Thanks very much. And, uh, well, I'll catch you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.